Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. The last time we talked about what happened on the Feast of Pentecost, and then we segued into the New Testament fulfillment with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to go into depth regarding Peter's Pentecost speech as a result of him being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Peter's speech wasn't prepared. If you remember, they're worshiping God, declaring, they're praising God, and their language is coming out in different tongues. Okay, we talked about this last time. Now Peter actually goes into this speech and he starts to explain the events that are happening. Uh, this isn't a prepared speech by Peter because Jesus didn't give him an appointment when the Holy Spirit would come upon him. So once the, the tongues thing happened and all the, the Jews in the area gathered around to listen and he starts to explain it, this is, this is the Holy Spirit. This is off the top of his head. This is memorization of the Old Testament. And it's a, it's a fantastic speech that he, that he goes into that we're going to take apart. But it's amazing because there's different gifts of the Spirit. One, one gift of the Spirit is evangelism. Uh, I, as well as Al Terhune here, he does a lot of evangelism to uh, the, the crowds. And he just is amazing. He doesn't have notes. I watch them. He just comes up with the scriptures. The Lord gives him what he needs in that time. I'm more of a one-on-one -on -one evangelist guy. I could sit with a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jewish person in a non-offensive way, give them the gospel in a way that they could understand it. And that's truly a gift. God gives me the scriptures. They just come. I just start pulling them out of the air. I've got to tell you, when I prepare these messages, it takes me hours. It takes me a long time. So my evangelism really is my primary gift. It comes a lot easier than actually doing this. So you're going to see that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he just, bam, he gives this incredible speech, and that's what we're going to go into today. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter's going to use Old Testament prophecy to explain what's currently happening with these manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It's sort of like a, a judge. When a judge is interpreting law, okay, what he does is a judge usually goes back to case law. He goes to a foundation of some type of law and some type of judicial decision that was already set, and he pulls from that so he could make a decision on a current legal proceeding. Well, this is what Peter's doing. He's using the foundation of the Old Testament, okay, to help them understand and get a grasp on, wh on what's happening here in the New Testament. Remember the last thing that was said last Sunday for those of you that were here in verse 13 regarding these tongues? Some of the people mocked them and said, ah, these guys are drunk. Peter's response, it's only 9 a.m. The third hour of the day was 9 a.m. It's too early to be drunk. Um, Peter's trying to challenge his fellow Jews on their Old Testament knowledge and familiarity. Now, I'm not sure if this speech from Peter was divided like the, the praising was that we went into last Sunday. I don't believe it was because these people that he's speaking to would be multilingual. They actually would be trilingual, the people he was addressing. He's addressing Jewish people, even proselytes to Judaism. They would have known Hebrew. He's addressing people from uh, local areas and, and adjoining countries that were coming into Jerusalem. They would know Aramaic, which was a local Semitic tongue. He was uh, speaking to people that were all encompassed in the Roman Empire. These people were all conquered, no matter where they were coming from, by the Romans. And the Romans were Hellenized, so they would understand Greek. So it's a speculation. It was Peter speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. 
Either way, they would understand that language. Peter had a great working knowledge of the Old Testament and uses it extensively in explaining the manifestations of this new thing that people are experiencing, the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, any sign and wonder that we run into today has to be tested with Scripture. Folks, we're living in the age of deception. The Bible speaks about it. There's cults out there that are actually writing tracts to help people uh, understand their cult. And it's like an apologetic lesson. In cult. And people never did this before. Uh, Christians tell people about the way of salvation. Cults are putting these tracts out to try to confuse people and trip them up into getting them involved in their organization. We don't want you to come to Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We want you to come to Jesus Christ. It's not about our organization. It's about the message of Jesus Christ. And today, any practice, anything that you might say, well, what is that? What's going on? It's a new thing. You have to test it with Scripture. You always have to test it with Scripture. Verse 17. So Peter references the prophet Joel, and it says, verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I want to stop there. In Iran today, the gospel is stifled. Obviously, these churches are not allowed. The Bibles are illegal, okay? It's so bad in Iran that any signals that come from evangelical stations in the surrounding areas are jammed by the government. That's how afraid they are of the freeing power of the gospel. I'm getting reports from different missionary organizations, not just one, that there are people in Iran that are coming to Christ through visions and dreams. God's going to get his message through those people one way or another, whether the government likes it or not. Verse 18, And on my men servants and my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This comes right out of the Old Testament prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Now, Pastor Anthony, not too long ago, covered Joel, the book of Joel, on Wednesday nights. So if you need familiarity with that, you can log on to our website and get the download for free. Just check out what Anthony spoke about, and it'll help to maybe give you a little bit more background. But what does it mean? What's going on here? Well, he says, God says, in what God obviously considers the last days, the following events will take place, starting with the giving of the Holy Spirit in abundance, not selective, and we'll get into that. It's the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. That's the start of it. And ending with Jesus' return before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And in between is the church age or the, the age of grace, sandwiched in between there, which is what we're living in. Verse 17 through 18 is, again, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a grand scale versus selectivity. If you're taking notes, Numbers 11, you can refer to this, Numbers 11, 25 through 29. There was these two guys, Eldad and Medad. And, you know, it was Joshua and Moses, and Moses was the leader. And Eldad and Medad were, were uh, God put his spirit on them and they started to prophesy. And Joshua was upset because Moses was the leader. And Joshua comes to Moses and says, Moses, forbid them from prophesying. You know, you're the man. You know, God put his seal on you. 
And Moses actually gently said to him, listen, don't, don't forbid them. It would be great if all of God's people received the Spirit and they did these things. So you see, even in the Old Testament, there was a selectivity. And you know, it wasn't a favoritism, but God used uh, at various times the Spirit to come upon certain men and have them prophesy or have them do these great things. But it wasn't really a wholesale, all flesh, like you see here. Verse 19 through 20, he says, I will, and he says in verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, and then you see the blood and the fire and the vapor of smoke. Now understand this, between verse 18 and verse 19 is a, is a gap of about 2,000 years. Now you may say, well, how could that be? It's the same line. In God's prophecy, you could have God speaking in prophecy, and he could be in the future, then he could go back to the present, then he could go to the future. Remember, verses and chapters and all that stuff came later. God's prophecy was just out there. See, God sees time collectively. We see it depending on what block of time we're in. Yesterday we know is history. Tomorrow we know is the future. See? So what happened was, uh, and just uh, something similar too, in Isaiah uh, 61, in verse 2, there's also a gap. And Jesus recites that. We went through this in Luke. In this, when Jesus is in the synagogue, he opens the scroll, he recites Isaiah 61 about, it's a messianic uh, uh, prophecy, and in, in the middle of uh, verse 2, he stops and he rolls the scroll, remember, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your presence. Well, between what Jesus read about the, what the Messiah would do in the first century, there was a, the next verse would have been, and then the day of vengeance of the Lord, and Jesus didn't read that, because there was a gap in that verse, and the gap was... Again, close to 2,000 years. So the same thing is happening here. The flesh is the, um, the spirit is being poured out on all flesh, and then the great signs in the heaven, there's a gap. So Now, the other thing that's going on here is he speaks about the great and notable day of the Lord. In the Greek, the word is megalene kai epiphany. And you've heard some of that in epiphany, mega. So you know a lot of that comes out in the English. But what it means is magnificent or grand. The great day of the Lord. It's magnificent, grand, and it's also glorious and notable. But in the Old Testament, in Joel, if you go back to Joel, it's translated as the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the question is, how does terrible become glorious in the New Testament? Well, the first thing is, if you look up the word terrible in the dictionary, it can also mean extreme, intense, or awe-inspiring. So it has some interesting uh, you know, meanings aside from bad. So if you go over somebody's house for dinner and they say, hey, how was the dinner? You could say, man, that dinner was terrible. And you could mean it was good, but you might not be invited back to the house again. It could be in context there. The second thing is terrible can be both dreadful and awe-inspiring. If you're on the I'm in rebellion against God side of the fence, it's dreadful. If you're on the, I've made my peace with God's side of the fence, it could be awe-inspiring, you see? And breaking the day of the Lord down into a time period, which we did before when we went into Luke 21, the day of the Lord back then was a time period. They didn't really understand it. They knew some things were going to happen. And the cool thing is, as, as you got closer and closer to that time period in the first century, when it was elaborated on 1 Thessalonians 4, and you know when Jesus speaks about Matthew 24, you see that the day of the Lord now, you start to see a division. In the Old Testament, it was blurry. It was some event where the Lord comes back. In the New Testament, 
it's, it's broken down into a, a rapture where Jesus comes for his church, right? He takes them home. And also a day of judgment, which comes later. So as we get closer to that time, we see, you know, it, it, there's a schism, there's a, a, a dichotomy, a breaking up of that into digestible pieces. The rapture is a scintillating event. It's magnificent. Imagine that. The Lord, there's a trumpet blast. The Lord calls his church home. All of a sudden, we start rising up, you know, defying gravity. We're in the air. I really don't like heights, but I'm sure it won't bother me at the time. It'll probably be a scintillating event, the rapture. It'll be magnificent. However, the second coming of the Lord in judgment will be dreadful for those in rebellion. So it's the same thing, but it can be looked at different ways depending on what side of the fence you're on. But the bottom line is Peter is saying his men, what you see here today, what's going on today with the Holy Spirit is the start of Joel's prophecy. And if you're taking notes, Matthew 24, Luke 21, uh, verse 20 here, and Revelation 6, verse 12, the sixth seal, you start to see these cataclysmic events that are, that are taking place. Verse 21. Probably one of the most important Bible, uh, verses in the Bible, and I'll read that again. It says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we can see that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, anyone, anywhere, anytime, should be, believe on him, you know, they shall not perish but have eternal life. So I, I, I actually did that in my notes. This verse reminds me of John 3.16. So the question is, how did exclusivity creep into salvation over the years? Well, if you're in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish sect, you believe, that's where you are, you believe that only Jews can be saved. And what's interesting here is we're going to see, even in the book of Acts, as we go through Acts, there was a, a prejudice against the Gentiles. Peter tried to get the Gentiles, you know, he baptized Cornelius and his family, he led them to the Lord. Paul was a, a, you know, a Jewish man ministered to the Gentiles. He tried to bring the Gentiles in. And they met with a lot of opposition. The church at large allowed it to happen because they, they went with these men's reputation and these men said, listen, God told us that the Gentiles need to come in. So they allowed it. But you see, um, you know, exclusivity. Even today, if you're in the Christian identity movement, you believe that only whites can be saved. If you're part of the black Israelites, you believe only black Israelites can be saved. If you're a five-point Calvinist, you think only the elect can be saved, and nobody knows who the elect is anyway, unless God actually comes down and says, hey, you're one of the elect. You can say, well, I am the elect because I'm a Calvinist, but according to this, their theology, God elects you. And if, unless he's told you personally, how do you know that you're the elect? So the whole thing gets a little confusing. If you're a Jehovah Witness, well, only 144,000 can be saved, and of course they're Jehovah Witnesses. Um, I don't get the 144,000, like 144,001, it can't be. You know, after 144,000, standing room only in heaven, there's the cutoff, you've got to go back down to earth. Um, I don't know, maybe when God was building heaven and he, he should have gone to the permit office and asked for a bigger facility, I don't know. But I don't get that one. If you believe in good works, the wealthy have a better shot because... The wealthy can afford to do more good works. Think about that. If good works is the way to get into heaven, and I'm a billionaire, I could buy my way into heaven. So George Soros has a really great chance of getting in there no matter what he does. And that's um, ridiculous. So how did it come to this? Because this is not what the scripture says. These groups are exclusionary. What's interesting to me is that 
there's a misinformation that Christians are exclusionary. Not so. If you read the Bible, the Bible says that anybody could get in. The good news, Jesus said, Jesus said this, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples unto me. That's your classic conditional statement, if then. They use that in computers. If this condition is met, then this will happen. Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples unto me. So Jesus was lifted up from the earth, therefore all peoples will be drawn unto him. And when he gives the Great Commission, he says that go preach the gospel to all tribes, nation, tongues, and peoples. So the, the gospel is supposed to be preached to everyone. Everyone has the opportunity for salvation. No exclusivity there. God crosses all socioeconomic boundaries to reach us. Joel mentions a few people here. He mentions the young and the old. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In that society, the older would always get deferential or preferential treatment. Okay? The younger person got nothing, especially if you were the last born. You were the youngest. You didn't get anything. The old were revered. The gray-haired person was revered. Young person, nothing. So God is saying here, now I'm going to break through all your, your ideas of what a, a godly person or a person who receives the Spirit should be. Everybody gets it. He speaks about males and females. Again, in that society, males were a dominant figure. It was a patriarchal society, and women, you know, we're along for the ride, so to speak. But we see in the New Testament that uh, women were prophetesses, women were deaconesses, women had prominent positions in, in ministry in the church. God, so God broke through those boundaries. You see here that he speaks about the slaves, uh, doulos and doulas in, in the Greek. That, those are slaves. It says servants, but these people were slaves. Slaves now get uh, God's spirit. This is pretty amazing. So God broke down through all these boundaries to reach everyone. The Bible says all. Last week, we talked about reversing Babel. The language uh, that everybody heard in their own dialect reunited everyone at Pentecost. And now we see diverse people will be given an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is notwithstanding their status, color, gender, popularity, or wealth in society. Talk about your diversity lesson. It's right in here, right? So maybe next time you're in school and they want to teach diversity, ask if you could bring the Bible in, right? Verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne... He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in hates, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Here he gets into the power of the resurrection. In verse 22 and 23, he's, and I'm going to paraphrase some of this stuff, in plain language, Peter says to him, listen, you've all been here since the Passover, and we discussed this the last time, when they make their, from all these countries, the devout Jews would come into Jerusalem to observe the Passover, they would stay, and, you know, the 50 days, and they would wait till Pentecost, they would still be there for that feast. But he's saying to them, listen, everybody here knows what happened. It's almost like that expression, there's an elephant under the table that nobody wants to talk about. You guys know what happened to Jesus. You were all here. You know, let's, let's just get that out in the open first. Even Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was um, uh, not visible to them, his appearance, and he was uh, saying to them, well, what, what happened? Cleopas says to him, everybody knows what happened to Jesus. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? So everybody knows what happened to Jesus, the whole crucifixion. Today, 2,000 years later, Everyone also knows, but the question is, what are they going to do with that knowledge? And we're going to revisit that later, just before the end. But let's follow the path of culpability that Peter takes them down. Let's, the, the blame, that, that, that this culpability that Peter uh, asserts, uh, ascribes to them. And it starts with this. In verse 22, Peter says to them, and I'm, I'm building a case here, Peter says to them, He, Jesus, was in your midst. God sent him to you, and you knew of the miraculous works wrought by Jesus. In verse 23, Peter says, You have taken him by lawless hands and put him to death. In verse 36, Peter says it again, You crucified him. And in verse 38, Peter says, Repent. Two important points here. We often see in the scripture, sovereignty and free will go hand in hand. And often, sovereignty and free will happen actually in one verse throughout the scripture. God is in control of human events, but at the same time, humans choose their behavior, or they choose you know, what they're going to do with their lives, and they both work together. In verse 23, God determined for his son to be a sacrifice, okay, for the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. And at the same time, the people made a decision to take him with lawless hands. They're both happening at the same time. And the second thing is these people had blame. Were some in the crowd complicit? I don't know. There was 3,000 that got saved, probably maybe some that didn't get saved. So there was at least 3,000 people that he's, he's speaking to. Did some of them shout crucify? You know, mob mentality, all everybody else is doing it, I'll do it. I don't know. Or were they just ignoring what was going on? There's a famous quote from Edmund Burke that I'm sure many of you have heard. He says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And it's just as it's bad to turn a blind eye to what was going on as in engaging in that activity. I'll give you an example from law enforcement. Uh, In law enforcement, as police officers, if your partner has somebody arrested and handcuffed and then he decides to beat him up, you can't just whistle a tune and go like this, I don't see anything. Because when it comes to court, you're going to get indicted too. The law says that you have a duty to restrain your partner, 
you can't turn a blind eye to what's going on. When I was in college in criminal law in New Jersey, I took that course. Unfortunately, the general public doesn't have that responsibility. That doesn't mean you shouldn't call 911 if you see something bad happening. Uh, But it should be. There was uh, the famous case of Kitty Genovese, a woman who was murdered, and the neighbors looked and heard, and they did nothing. Nobody even called the police. It was kind of out in the open. It was pretty bad. But what about turning a blind eye as Christians? Let's take that application and bring it to us. What do we as Christians turn a blind eye to? Well, maybe some things our teens are doing. Maybe some things we turn a blind eye to just for the sake of peace in the home. I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to know what's going on. What about somebody fudging or overcharging their customers uh, and that person is your business partner? You kind of turn the blind eye to it because, you know, it's a partnership and there's legal issues and, you know what, I don't want any problems with my business, so I'm just going to turn a blind eye to it. Eh, he's, his walk is shaky, so I don't, want to, I don't want to be judgmental as a Christian. What about a friend's compromise, but you're keeping quiet for the sake of the friendship? I suspect that happens a lot. You just want peace in the relationship, right? If God's word holds us accountable for unintentional sins, which it does, and the sins of omission, which it does, then God's word will certainly hold us accountable for turning a blind eye. And I think Peter's hitting them right between the eyes, maybe the one blind eye that they turned, that you should, you shouldn't, you're, you're guilty, you're culpable. In verse 25 through 28, P, or Peter quotes, you, you see, if most of your Bibles, even in the ones that we handed out, they should be italicized. And what Peter's speaking about here, he's actually taking a chunk out of the Old Testament. Verse 25 through 28 comes directly out of Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, which was a psalm of David. And the superscription reads in the psalm of David, eternal life for the one who trusts. Now, David couldn't be talking about himself because he died and his body decayed, and by this time his tomb was among them. Obviously, Peter shares that in verse 29. So this portion of that psalm was ascribed to the Messiah. And we often see that the Old Testament makes a case for resurrection prior to it occurring. Even in Daniel 12, it speaks about the resurrection. Some will be resurrected to eternal damnation, of contempt and shame, and some to eternal glory. So all throughout the Old Testament, people say, well, you know, where do you get the whole resurrection thing? It started in the Old Testament. It was prophesied. Interesting thing about the resurrection. To be a Muslim doesn't require the resurrection of Muhammad. Many Muslims believe they know where the tomb of Muhammad is and they make pilgrimages to that tomb and they revere him as a great prophet. But to be a Muslim doesn't require, ask any Muslim, the resurrection of Muhammad. To be a Buddhist doesn't require the resurrection of Buddha. As a matter of fact, while I was checking the blogs on Friday, did you know that Friday was Buddha's birthday? Okay, people celebrate, they they revere him. But to be a Buddhist does not require the resurrection of Buddha. To be a a Mormon doesn't require the resurrection of Joseph Smith. But to be a Christian demands, it demands the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, if they would have just produced the body early, they wouldn't have had this problem with this little Judaic sect that started 2,000 years ago. All they had to do was produce the body. They killed him. They knew where he was buried. They could have produced the body. But they couldn't because he rose from the dead. And I find it interesting that somebody or an organization could call itself a church and say, well, we want to compromise with what the world has to say, the secular world, because we don't want to have problems. 
And you know what? Maybe the resurrection thing, we can, we can split hairs on that and say, you know, maybe it didn't happen. How could you call yourself Christian and not believe in the resurrection? It's all throughout the scripture. The first major preaching about the church, about what it means to be a Christian by Peter, the resurrection is all over this. And in verse 30, most know David as a king, but he was also a prophet. And many of David's prophecies are listed in the book of Psalms. In, if you're taking notes, Psalm 132, verse 11, and 2 Samuel 7:16, God promised David from his lineage would come an eternal monarchy, and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because we know at some point that the, the kings were cut off when they were taken over by the Babylons, the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. They lost their, their monarchy. However, through Christ, there's an eternal monarchy because Jesus was from the lineage of David. Verse 34 and 35. Here's another psalm that Peter is pulling out of the Old Testament. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter pulls this right out of Psalm 110. And we actually we went through this extensively uh, in the Christmas service. In the Greek, it's Ipen hakorios to korio mu. And then we translated it to the Hebrew. And what we got was, if you break that psalm apart, he's saying, God said to my Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make my enemies your footstool. And what was interesting is Jesus used this, stump, this psalm to stump the religious leaders because David was speaking about someone who wasn't born from his line and he's calling him his Lord. And you didn't do that in that culture. The father had, uh, you know, he was the patriarch and the grandfather was revered more. And if the great-grandfather was still alive, everybody went to him for advice. So for David to say through the Spirit, calling his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson my Lord was totally uncharacteristic. And Jesus used that to get the religious leaders to think about what they were saying and their ideas about who the Messiah was. But what that psalm means was that the Messiah would be resurrected, and this was uh, prophesied oh, probably a thousand years prior to it happening, and that he, the Messiah, would be established into an exalted position. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The result of all this, of Peter's preaching, was to be cut to the heart. Chuck Smith um, says that, I remember when I was listening to some of his commentaries, he believed that fire and brimstone preachers are not very effective. Most people are won by the love of God. And I, love, I love Chuck. That guy's a wealth of knowledge, and I agree with the large majority of what he says, but on this point I respectfully disagree. Because as we saw before, Peter is preaching fire and brimstone. 
I mean, he's cutting them left. He's cutting them so deep that they look up and go, oh, man, I feel so bad. What, what do I do? How can I be saved? And Peter does that a lot. He, I think Peter's a, a, probably the earliest fire and brimstone preacher, one of the earliest ones. But the question is, have you ever been cut to the heart? See, there's two reactions. You, have, you can have two reactions when you hear something undesirable about yourself. You could immediately go into defense mode. Somebody approaches you and they tell you something about yourself and right away you're in defense mode. You harden your heart and your mind races about ways that you can get out of the accusation. That's the first thing you could do. And we've all been there because, you know, you don't want to be embarrassed. The second thing you could do is you could listen to what's being said. You could be cut to the heart and you could think about how to repair that relationship and how to make it better. Those are the two things that happen when you hear something undesirable about yourself. In this situation, in this particular portion of scripture, the reconciliation needed was with the relationship that they had with God. That had to be repaired. But what about us? It was, uh, I, most of you know that a few weeks back my son was in a bus accident. Two buses crashed and my son hit his head. We had to go to the hospital, the whole deal. And now, of course, I have to deal with the hospital bills and the insurance company. And I'm kind of irritated because I wasn't driving the bus, but it has to go through my personal policy. I wasn't even on the bus. I don't own the bus. So why do I have to do all the legwork, right? So a woman called me from, uh, I guess, the accounts receivable from the hospital. And, you know, it's all on me now. And I was irritated. And I was also at work. And my partner just found out that he had somebody that he had a, he found that the person had an arrest warrant. So I had to go. I was in a hurry. And I was a little short with the woman. I wasn't really mean. I was just short, a little short. So don't think bad about me. Um, and the last thing she said to me was, sir, I'm just trying to help you. And I said, okay, well, I, I have to go. And I hung up. When she said, sir, I'm just trying to help you, I was cut to the heart. I mean, it's a small matter, but the next day I called, I mean, I'll never see this woman. I don't know who she is, you know what I'm saying? But I called her back and I said, listen, I apologize. I said, I was under stress and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was a bad day. And she goes, that's okay, Mr. DeProsimo. I have bad days too. So, <laughs> so it really, <laughs> it was great. So it was really um, a good thing, and like I said, I probably will never meet her again. No, don't know who she was, but I, I was cut to the heart, and I just felt like she was trying to help me, and I was being a jerk. So, and you can all look at your lives and see where you can, you know, have this situation where you can say, "Hey, I did something wrong." And if you're married, and if you've been married for a while, you've probably been cut to the heart a, a few times, right? But you know, <laughs> if you don't know the Lord. You should be being cut to the heart right now with this message because it's God's word. And God's word is like a sword, the Bible says, and it cuts, you know, between, you know, sword, uh, bones and marrow. And it is, it is the center of the fence and the intents and the thoughts of the heart. So the, the God's word is a, a sword and it does cut. And if you don't know the Lord, hopefully some of this is cutting and getting through to your heart, right? But no one in ecclesiastical authority is above this, um, and I got to tell you, there's times I apologize when it's appropriate to apologize. Uh, I have two pastor mentors that taught me well, and they both knew how to apologize. So, you know, I kind of learned from that. I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that when people in ecclesiastical authority believe that they're above apology and they're above mistake, and they can't expose the facade of perfection, and that causes problems because they have this facade to protect. I'm a pastor, I'm a whatever, religious leader. And then what happens is they become isolated because they can't 
they can't admit to any little chink or weakness in the armor. And what happens is um, you read about them in the paper sometime later by doing because they did something bad because there's no accountability. They're isolated. So we're, we're all human and we all make mistakes. And I think this is a good lesson for everybody. But there's also freedom in admitting wrong. Don't you feel sometimes when like you're busted on something and you just, oh, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And somebody says yes. It's like a catharsis. You know, it just it's a freedom. Because you, you try to put up this wall about, um, I don't want to get busted. I don't want people to find out. And then, you know, you, you spend so much time putting the bricks in that wall that, you know, it, it becomes a full-time job. But it's just, to me, it's, it removes the shackles of bondage to living a lie. And, you know, that bondage eventually will, you know, harden your heart, possibly send you to hell. Who knows? But verse 41 says this, Then those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. It's interesting, in Exodus 32:28, that 3,000 lives were lost during the giving of the law. When, Moses, when God gave Moses the law and Moses gave it to the people. But by contrast, 3,000 souls were added to eternity with the giving of the Holy Spirit on what's believed to be the same day. Pretty amazing stuff. 3,000 souls added to the church. And what does that mean? What church? Well, he must mean when he said join the church and added to the church, he probably was talking about Calvary, Calvary Chapel, right? <laughs> well, the word in Greek implies a calling out of God's people. As we said before, there was no names to these churches. There was no buildings. They had to meet uh, secretively during the persecution. Uh, there was just an assembly of believers. And I got to say, when we do next Sunday service, we're going to really talk about, according to the scripture, what church is supposed to be. And some people's ideas of church will be challenged by what the scripture has to say. So I want to revisit uh, verse 38 because I left it off some time back. I want to go back to it. Verse 38, and then we'll uh, close it. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word for it has actually a deeper meaning. It really means on the basis of. So in other words, Peter is saying be baptized because your sins are forgiven, because you have repented, and because you have sought the Lord. God's words cut to the heart. There was repentance. There was forgiveness. There was the receiving of the Holy Spirit, and then there was baptism. And Peter is saying to them, really, if you think about the climate at the time, it's not long after this that persecution's coming, okay? And the world, the secular world, just thought, well, this guy was crucified, and why would anybody worship him? Okay, so take that and, and hold that. Peter is saying to these guys, listen, put some feet on your faith. If you're really genuine, and you're really cut to the heart, and you really mean it, prove it. Be baptized and show the world that you identify with this Jesus Christ. And that's what baptism is. It's an identity. We go to the, the, the ocean grove and we do the baptisms and you're, you're showing the world that you identify with Jesus Christ, that you want to put away the old man and bury him in the water and you come out with newness of life. That's what baptism is. It's an outward display of your inward heart. And he's saying to them, guys, it's going to cost something to, to you to be baptized and to show the surrounding community that you're identifying with Jesus. And so I would ask you here today, what are you going to do, like I said before, with that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that we talked about? If you don't know the Lord, do you want to repent? 
And for those of you who don't understand what repentance is, all that means is, and we, we did so many examples of repentance, is you're going in a direction and God gets a hold of your heart and what you're saying to God is, at this point in my life, everything that I've done that's sinful, I, I asked for forgiveness for. Um, everything that I've believed about spiritual issues, I, I want to turn from that and I want to go with what your word says about that. You're doing a whole, whole change of direction in your heart. So, do you want to repent? Do you want to receive the Holy Spirit? And do you want to start your walk with God today? That's your decision. Let's pray. The Lord